0: Have you ever played that game? Where's the line? You know, kids do it all the time, right? It's uh, you tell them, "Hey, don't touch your sister," and what happens? Is that they get as close to their sister as they can without touching her, right? Or you tell, them, "Hey, stop singing," and then they start humming, right? It's just where's the line? Trying to find that, find that line where hey, I can get I can get as close to whatever you're telling me not to do, but uh, still not do it. You know, try to find that those boundaries. Uh, You know, we never really get past that, though, though, do we? You know, we start as kids, we never really grow out of it. I know, you know, second semester Hebrew class, I just want to know where the line was, right? What do I have to do to pass? I don't really care about acing this class. I, I just want to somehow get through it. Where's the line? And so, you know, we never really finish playing that game. Where's the bare minimum? What's passable? What's acceptable? And so this morning, as we continue our study through the Gospel of Mark, We're gonna see just a couple of groups of people who go to Jesus and they're interacting with Jesus and they're having the same question, where's the line? What's passable, what's acceptable? And Jesus is going to reorient their thinking. I want you to see it with me. We're gonna start first with a group of religious people. Uh, We'll begin there, Mark 10 verses one through 16. John Mark writes, and Jesus left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan and crowds gathered to him and again, as And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the little children come to me, do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them." So remember from last week, Jesus, he just spent a lot of intense time with his disciples in Capernaum. And there he was training them, he's developing them, and he's really getting, trying to get them to understand what's going to happen to him his suffering, his death, everything that's coming his way. And at the same time, he's also preparing them for the persecutions that are coming their way. And so this is what's happening. Now he's on the road again. He comes into the region of Judea by the Jordan. And what happens? The crowds, they find out and just they flock to Jesus. And we see this over and over again. The crowds, they can't get enough of Jesus. People want to be with Jesus. There's this magnetism about him. He's, he's not doing any miracles here. There's no healings, not, nothing like that. He's simply teaching them. This was his custom, it says. He just teaches and people hang on his words. They're mesmerized by his words. This is just the magnetism, the charisma that Jesus have has. They want to be with him. And then, well, the Pharisees show up and they ask Jesus a question, what, uh, what, what do you say about divorce? Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, the Pharisees, they're not so interested in Jesus' like legal opinion on the matter, okay? This is just the question that they're using because they want to trap Jesus. They're just trying to find some kind of like thing in the Mosaic law where if we can get Jesus to say this, well, then we've got him and we'll trap him and then we'll nail him, okay? So divorce is just the avenue that they're going down. But, you know, Jesus, he has his way of just putting his finger right on things, you know? And as he often does, he turns it right back on them. And he asks them the question, well, what, is Mo- what did Moses command you about divorce? And you know, their answer is gonna, is gonna expose their flaw in their thinking, right? Because they're gonna say, well, Moses, he said it's okay if a man divorces his wife as long as he gives her a certificate of divorce, then you're good. You understand, the the thinking in the day, the culture in the day was this, that uh, hey, men had this inalienable right to divorce their wife for any and every reason, okay? This was the thinking, this was the custom of the day. So much so that, you know, in Malachi, in Malachi, God says through the prophet, I hate divorce. The Aramaic translation of the day, they took that and they just kind of twisted it around a little bit and they, they translated it this way, if you hate her, divorce her. Okay, so this was the thinking that, man, you, you can divorce. You give her a certificate, you're good. That's the thinking. And Jesus says, so, what did Moses say? And, and their response, well, hey, as long as we do this, we're good. You see what it's saying? They're saying, hey, here's the line. As long as, as, long as we're on this side of the line, then we're good. And this is how the Pharisees dealt with the law. It's how they dealt with life, right? If it's a law that they're not really comfortable with, then hey, we we can just kind of bend it or we can kind of find some kind of loophole in the law and we're good, we're okay. But if it's a law that like, hey, we can really make ourselves look really religious and really pious and really special by keeping it, then we'll add all these other things to it so people can see and we'll stand out and we'll really look like good God people. That's their thinking. Here, this one, hey, you know, everyone knows you can divorce your wife. She irritates you, whatever. You get rid of her. Here's the certificate of divorce. You know, in those days, this, this was the thinking. In the Greco-Roman world in which Mark was writing, um, it, was, it, was even, it went even beyond that. You didn't even have to give anybody a certificate. Either spouse could just leave the marriage for whatever reason. And you walk away, and then you're done with the marriage, and that was it. It was over. Um, Also in those days, it's maybe interesting to note that the children always went with the man, all right? Unless there were really some kind of extreme circumstances that whenever uh, the, the mom and dad divorced, the children would always go with the man. Now, Moses, Jesus says, Moses gave that command for divorce. He allowed it because of the hardness of man's hearts. He gave, he gave this permission because of sin. But Jesus' reasoning is this. Yes, Moses permitted it because of sin, but since sin entered and this permission had to be granted, it was never God's design. God's design for marriage was never divorce, and so he, he points the religious leaders back to God's design for marriage, and he takes them back to Genesis 1 and 2, also the book of Moses. The first five books are the book of Moses, so he takes them back and he quotes Moses to them. He says, no, this is God's design for marriage, that the two would become one. And what God joins together and intertwines and creates this beautiful unity that is to represent God. Don't let anyone separate that. That's the design for marriage. Well, this is revolutionary, okay? Nobody's thinking like this at the time, and even the disciples, they, they, they just haven't heard teaching like this. This is not what the rabbis would be teaching in the day. This was not uh, religious understanding of the day. And so when they get along, they're, they're even asking Jesus, well, you know, tell us more about this. Like, you know, what are you saying now about divorce? And Jesus, it, it seems like he goes even further. and says, well, I'm telling you this. If a man divorces his wife and marries another, He commits adultery. If a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. It sounds like even remarriage is adultery here. So here's the thing that Jesus is getting at in this passage. I know it's hard, but there's a couple things going on. One, Jesus is proclaiming the gospel. Okay, he's proclaiming the good news of what God's law is meant to be and his design is meant to be, so he's proclaiming the good news. Second, he's dealing with skeptics who are trying to trap him and trick him and trying to get him to say something, and so they're dealing with loopholes, and Jesus, he he wants to redirect all that thinking, not to address the loopholes, but to address God's design. And then also, the question that's being asked is not, are there grounds for divorce? The question that's being asked is, can a man divorce his wife? And Jesus, he's not dealing with the exceptions. He's not, he's not dealing with what grounds there may, may be. What he's dealing with is God's design. This is, this is how marriage is designed to be, and that's what he's wanting the, the religious leaders to understand, the crowds to understand, his disciples to understand. He's pointing them to God's best. now. I know that uh, with this passage, you know, yes, divorce is um, permitted. Mo- Moses is saying, Moses has said that. One of the things Jesus is pointing out, and he's using language, okay, the same type of language that would be used if you were to relinquish a piece of property, or if you were to relinquish you know, a deed to your house or something like that, and you were to sell it to somebody else, he uses that same type of language Um, legal language, and if you were to divorce your spouse, and here's the certificate of divorce, and one of his points is, you know, you can get rid of a piece of property, you can get rid of your home, but when you divorce your spouse, it's just not so easy, right? The courts might say the marriage is over, but in reality, it's just not so easy. Why? Because yes, you've split the assets, and yes, you've got this schedule for when each other can see children and all this, but there's still this entwineness that God has created, and so there's this, still this hurt, and there's this pain, and there's this suffering that's associated. It's not just so clean. It's not so cut and dry. And so yeah, God hates divorce. And I know some of you in here, you've experienced divorce. And I but I also know from talking to divorced people, most divorced people hate divorce too. Right? And you know, oh man, I really love that. That was great. No. You you love the sin that led or you hate the sin that led to it. You hate the effects that it's caused. You hate the hurt. You hate the pain from all of it. You hate it just like God hates it. But the thing that we must understand when Jesus is proclaiming this, he's proclaiming God's design for marriage. He's not here trying to just bash people over the head who were already like broken and bruised from their, from their past. That's not what he's doing. God hates divorce, but he does not hate the divorced person. Right, and we see this throughout the ministry of Jesus. Jesus goes out of his way to meet with a Samaritan woman who's been divorced five times and now is living with a man who's not even her husband. And what does he do? He he just demonstrates an unusual amount of love, a crazy amount of love, because this is Jesus, right? He, He loves the sinner. And yes, at the same time, he hates the sin. He, he hates divorce, but he loves divorced people. And the point for all, in, in all of this, for all of us, that he was trying to make to the Pharisees, that he's trying to make to the crowds, that he's trying to make to the disciples, is this aim for God's best. In all that you do, aim for God's best in life. Aim for God's design for your marriage. A- aim for that. Aim for God's best for your family. Aim for God's best in how you steward your finances and how, how you steward your bodies and how you steward your time and all these things. In, in everything, we aim for God's best. We don't just look for the line, okay? Like, all right, what, what's, what's it gonna be, require of me to be like a good citizen and you know, if I can just do the bare minimum and God will be happy, that's good. Doing stuff, being obedient, this is not about God loving you more or less, okay? God loves you so he wants to give you the empowered life. He wants to give you depth of life and richness of life and fullness of life. It's not a matter of him loving you more or less. It's a matter of him wanting to give you life the way it's meant to be lived. This is why he gives command, it's always for our good. It's not just to make him happy. All right, so, so this is why the commands are given. We aim for his best. So, little time later, People start bringing children to Jesus, so the Jews would just touch them. Jesus just touches my kid, and the disciples see it. They're like, no, no, we got, we, got to, we got to stop this. Jesus needs to be talking to adults. And maybe sometimes you see these back-to-back, and so some people have thought, you know, well, maybe uh, this is just not age-appropriate, you know. Jesus maybe still talking about divorce or something. This is it really appropriate for kids or something like that, so maybe they need to just stay. No, no, no. The thinking of the day is kids are insignificant, all right? We talked about that last week. We don't think like that in our culture, but that was the thinking then. Kids are insignificant. They're less than. We, we get them away. Let's let the important people hear what Jesus have to, has to say. Jesus is saying, they're, 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 even the ones that you consider insignificant, they're significant to me. And th- this month that we value life, we recognize there are still people in our culture who deem the pre-born babies is insignificant and we affirm just like Jesus is here. No, all of life is significant. All of life is valuable. And we affirm it. And you know this also, this passage also speaks to the divorced person who maybe feels like less than or insignificant themselves. No. God see there's no insignificant people in the family of God. That all are welcomed, all are loved. And after that, well, another guy approaches Jesus. And this guy, too, he's looking for the line. Let's go ahead. We'll check that out. Mark 10, 17 through 31. Mark 10, 17 through 31. It reads, And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. Now I imagine everybody saw this guy coming. Imagine many people in the crowd, they probably knew who he was. And, hey, here's, here's, here's that rich guy, here's the, here's the guy with wealth, and here he is approaching Jesus. And perhaps they made a way for him so that he could just go right up and have this conversation with Jesus. You know, if he's a friend, he's the kind of friend that you look at, and you're like, man, this guy has everything. You know, you have a friend like that, who seemingly has it, what would he get the guy who has everything? You know, it's, it's, it's hard to know what to get somebody who has everything. But this guy knows he doesn't have everything. I imagine Jesus also knew that he doesn't have everything. Maybe they were the only two people there that knew that, hey, this guy doesn't have everything. It's why he's there. And so he's asking Jesus, he approaches Jesus and he approaches him just with reverence and respect. He kneels down before Jesus just respectfully and he says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, again, you know, he just has that way of putting his finger on things. And he looks at the man and he says, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. In other words, he's saying to this young guy, hey, are you just calling me a good teacher to kind of, is this some form of empty flattery so that, you know, I can do whatever it is you ask, or I can answer your questions or have a conversation with you? Or are you calling me good because you recognize that I'm the Messiah and I have say over your life? Do you you merely think that I'm a good teacher so that you can kind of listen to and maybe consider what I have to say? Or do you recognize that there is no one good except God and that I am Lord and I have have authority over your life? You know, we can play this game. Sometimes we still do where, yes, we think Jesus is good, you know, and his teaching is full of wisdom. There's lots of good things to be taken from it. But does it have authority over our lives? Or is it just merely something to consider? You know, sometimes we live life as, as, as if we just have a board of directors, you know. Something happens, you, you run into a crisis, uh, some difficult situation. So we have this board of directors that we go to, and Jesus is on the board. You know, he's got a seat at the table. And so, okay, here's a difficult situation. I go to my friends. Hey, somebody slapped me on the cheek. What do you think I should do? Oh, you need to ignore them. I have nothing to do with them anymore. You go to Jesus. Hey, Jesus, somebody slapped me on the cheek. What, what should I do? Well, turn the other cheek. Let them slap you on the other one. Well, that's interesting. Uh, Clint Eastwood, what do you think, you know? I mean, and so we had this board. Jesus is saying, I have no interest in being on your board. I'm either Lord or nothing at all, right? C.S. Lewis put it this way, that Jesus, he's either Lord or he's a lunatic, right? Because all the stuff he says, if it's not true, he's a crazy man, he's absolutely nuts. So he's either Lord or he's a lunatic. The man comes, it says, What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Did you notice the word there? <laughs> inherit. He's not at, What do I have to do to earn eternal life? What do I have to do to receive eternal life? What do I have to get to get eternal How do I inherit it? You know, it kind of reveals a little bit of his thinking that perhaps this young guy, all the wealth that he has, he's probably inherited it all, right? It's probably all just been given to him, just passed down to him. And sometimes when you inherit something, when it's just been given to you, well, maybe you don't trust it quite as much. Because if it's all been given, it can all be taken, you know? And sometimes you think that way. But if you ever met like a self-made millionaire or something like this, well, there's just a little more confidence behind it because you know, man, I, I put in the blood, sweat, and tears to earn that. And if I engage in some business deal and it goes sideways or some investment just goes down, well, no big deal. I'll just just do it again. I'll earn it again. I know what to do to earn it. You you just have this confidence in it. When it's just given to you, well, if I lose it, it's gone. I I can never get it back. And so how how do I inherit this? It does reveal I don't think I can earn it. I don't think I can achieve it. I, I recognize that it needs to be given. And that part of thinking is right. He has right thinking there. And Jesus says to him, well, you know the commandments, right? And he just starts listing some of them. And the young guy says, oh yeah, I know all those. I've kept them all since I was young. And you almost expect Jesus after that to be like, come on, man, like really? You broke commandment eight last week, right? Don't you remember that? Commandment six, you remember what you did, come on. No, 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 Jesus doesn't do that. He says, no, you're right, you lack one thing. You lack one thing. And you know, it's this talking about the 10 commandments. You know the 10 commandments? Do, you not, do I need to go back to Exodus this morning? It's gonna be a long sermon if I have to do that. But. It, You you go back to Exodus and in the 10 commandments that are given, if you know how they work, the first four are vertical commandments, okay? They're all how we relate to God. The last six are more horizontal commandments, how we relate to others. Did you catch when Jesus said, you know the commandments, how have you done with these? He only gives the last ones. He only gives the horizontal command, how have you treated other people? He hadn't said anything about how he loves God? Well, he's about to. You know, the, the first four commandments, right? You shall have no other gods before me. Don't make any God's graven images. Do not misuse my name. Do not make my name mean nothing by taking it in vain. Uh, remember the Sabbath, keep it holy. He's gonna summarize those in his question here that's coming because he looks at the guy and he says, yeah, you're right. But there's this one thing, there's this one thing that if you don't deal with it, it's it's like an anchor that's hung around your neck and it will drown you. He says, you gotta sell all that you have, you gotta give to the poor and you gotta follow me. What he's saying is, I'm not your God. All your stuff is God. This is what you value, this is what's Lord of your life all this stuff, and until you deal with that, you're drowning, it's drowning you. You know, we look at that invitation that Jesus gives the young man, he's, man, that's hard. that's That's a tough invitation right there. You do realize it's the same invitation that Peter and Andrew got, it's the same one that James and John got the same one that Matthew, all the disciples. You remember? Jesus comes and he sees them. Leave your boats, leave your nets, leave everything. Come follow me. Leave your tax collector's booth. Leave the coins. Leave it all. Come follow me. And all these disciples, what are they doing? In the middle of the day, they're not like, okay, well, just let me get my stuff in order real fast, Jesus, and then I will. No, they're, they're leaving it all and they're following Jesus. This guy gets the same invitation. It's the invitation to be the 13th disciple. But he didn't do it. It's too much. So he walks away. You know, I know nobody in Portsmouth is rich, right? Nobody here is rich. But let let me just ask you a couple questions. Do you have a house or an apartment? Do you have a car? you have electricity and running water, then by the world's standards, in the history of humanity, you're loaded, okay? I know you're saying, I got credit card bills, and I'm just paycheck to pay. I'm barely getting by. It's just, listen, if you have those things, by the standard of the history of humanity, you're filthy rich, just so we know who we are in the story. Okay, this guy lacks one thing, he's defined by stuff. You understand in a culture of affluence, people don't know who they are without their stuff. Sociologists will tell you this, you don't even need Christians to tell you, sociologists will tell you that in a culture of affluence, people do not know who they are without their stuff. You ask someone who they are, and they will tell you about what they do. They will tell you about their job. They will tell you about their home. They will tell you about where they go or the things they had. This is what defines them. You know, in cultures of poverty, it's not that way. You know what defines them? Their family. I'm the son of, I'm the daughter of. I come from this tribe. I'm a follower of Jesus. See, you understand? Only Jesus can give you all that. The world cannot give you who you are. That's why it's so important for us to find and know our identity in Christ. That we find our identity in Him and we know that our identity is locked in Jesus. Jesus put it this way, you cannot serve two masters. You'll love the one and hate the other. You'll despise the one, you'll adore the other. You can't serve God and mammon. You can't serve God and stuff. And I know we think, yeah, but who would serve stuff? I'd never do that. Really? (laughs) Yeah, one of the things I know, just, just from reading and studying, that if you want your kids to grow up, to love God, to know who they are, to to be confident, successful people, the one most important thing that you can do is just a lot of family time. The more time that you can have as a family around the dinner table doing fun things together, that is the number one deciding factor in uh, the success of your kids' lives. And yet I talk to so many people, and I'm guilty of it myself, like, yeah, but I'm so busy. We've got this this night and this this night, and we got that the next night, and there's so many things. And so we try to carve out a little bit of time here and a little window here. Why? Stuff. I serve stuff. I got to run to this. I got to run to this. I'm responsible. I'm obligated. So what happens? Stuff is Lord. Not God. Stuff. Jesus says, You lack one thing. If you don't deal with it, It's like an anchor tied around your neck. This guy comes to Jesus wanting eternal life. You know, Jesus gives eternal life now, right? You don't just wait till you die and then Jesus says, all right, here's eternal life. You understand that when Jesus gives eternal life, he gives it to us here and now. It, and it's not just lifespan on this earth, right? We die, we, we don't stay on this earth forever, there's gonna be a new earth, things are gonna get better than this. It's not just lifespan. Eternal life is also life depth, you know. And this man, he might be thinking this way. And Jesus is saying, no, I wanna give you hope. I wanna give you joy. I wanna give you depth of relationship and depth of identity and depth of empowerment. I wanna give you depth of life. That's eternal life here and now. The world can't give you that. Only Jesus can give you that. You know, sometimes I think we look at this story and it's a rich young ruler. And just the title of him, you know, it almost makes us wanna like turn our noses to him. He's almost an easy guy to dislike because he's rich, he's young, so it's all been given to him. He's a ruler, so he's in charge over other people. And we look at those three things. "Ah, He's an easy guy just to look at and say, "I I don't really like him too much. The fact that he walked away, that's I'm kind of okay with that one. Understand, this is the guy that we would all like. You know, all those horizontal commandments, how you treat other people, he treats other people nice. He's not some spoiled brat. No, he's honored his father and mother. I've kept that. We see his respect and reverence just in the way he treats Jesus. No, this is a man of integrity. He's, he's an honest man. He's not just looking and thinking, how can I get more and more and more? He's not covetous, jealous of what other people ask And He's not that. He's the kind of guy we'd probably all like for a friend. He's not the kind of guy we'd run away from. In fact, in some respects, he's a guy maybe we'd even like to be more like. But he has this one issue, stuff is Lord. Stuff is, and sometimes that can be our issue as well. And you know the saddest part of the story, to me? The guy walks away. Jesus gives him the invitation. You can follow me, and he walks away. And you can almost see him if you just imagine him just counting the cost in his, in his mind. Oh man, I'm going to have to, this is like my family's legacy. What, what, what is this going to mean if I just like give away all the stuff that my family has worked so hard for and I just sell it all? How much time will that take? And what efforts, what, how can I do that? And, you know, he walks away sad because none of that satisfies. All this legacy of his family or whatever, and he's, now he's got the responsibility, the burden of it. It doesn't satisfy he's not happy that oh yes I got my stuff still he said none of that satisfies an identity in Christ that satisfies and you know we want Jesus to chase him down don't we we want him as the man is walking away that Jesus used to run and kind of grab him by the collar and say hey young man you're missing it here's where you're thinking is wrong he's already exposed that to the young guy he just lets the guy walk that Jesus He respects our choice enough that he allows us to make it. It doesn't mean that he's not like the the father and the prodigal son who's just waiting and desperately praying that his son would come home. Yes, he wants that. But he respects us enough to let us make our own choice. He lets the man walk away. And he explains to the disciples, you know it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And remember who we are in the story here. It's hard. We have great wealth in America. We have homes, we have vehicles, we have electricity, we have running waters, we have more conveniences than the rest of the world has had in the course of human history. Uh, I was uh, struck, I, I couldn't believe it actually, um, this last summer, my family and I, we, were, um, we took a tour of President uh, Dwight Eisenhower's home uh, that he lived in back in, in the 50s. And I'm going through and I'm seeing the conveniences that he had, the amenities in his house that he lived in in the 50s. And I'm thinking, man, we live nicer today than the president of the United States lived in the 50s. And that doesn't seem all that long ago. Right? We're, we're a wealthy, affluent people. Jesus, says, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples, they're puzzled by the whole thing. They say, well, Jesus, if it's easier for the camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom, who in the world can be saved anyway? And Jesus says, you know what? With man, it is impossible. Salvation is impossible with man. You can't earn it. You, you can't achieve it. But with God, all things are possible. And Peter, he begins to say, Jesus, yeah, we left everything to follow you. But Jesus cuts him off. You know, he cuts him off, but the reality in Peter's mind just shows the reality of Jesus' statement that with God, the impossible becomes possible. With God, the impossible really does become possible. I mean, you think about it. These lifelong fishermen who have this legacy of fishing, they just leave everything. They don't get their affairs in order, nothing. They just leave families, boats, nets, everything to follow him. Yeah, God does the impossible. When God gets a hold of your heart and he becomes Lord. And that's what Paul said, how are you saved? You you confess that Jesus is Lord. Sometimes people wanna split like, well, I knew him as Savior here and then I knew him as Lord here. Paul doesn't give us that option. The gospel doesn't give us that option. He's either Lord or he's not. That's how you're saved, is Jesus is Lord. Now, Jesus cuts Peter off, and he tells Peter, and he tells the disciples, listen, anybody who's left, brother, sister, father, mother, land, houses, any of that, for my sake and for the sake of the gospel, anybody who's left all of that and endured persecution, because he's telling that, yeah, you've left all this, and you know what, you got persecution coming. You think that was hardest? it's going to get even tougher. People are gonna say things about you, they're gonna do things to you, your name is gonna be drugged through the mud, they're gonna kill you. But he says it's all worth it because you'll receive a 100 times as much. I don't know your cost for Jesus being Lord of your life, but I know that if he's Lord, there's been a cost. I know it's affected life because it does, there's always a cost with following Jesus. But Jesus gives this promise, you get a hundred times as much. Like in the end, you look back and you say, what cost it all? And so sometimes as we go through life and we say, Jesus, what do I have to do for you to be happy? Where's the line so that I'm pleasing to you? Jesus is saying, you can't reach the line. It's impossible for you to reach the line. You don't just, okay, you're good enough. No, there is only one who is good, God alone, you make him Lord so that you can experience the depth, the fullness, the empowerment of life that he has designed for you and you just want it and it's all worth it. Heavenly Father, God, this morning we do declare that you are Lord. Forgive us for when our priorities or our schedules or anything about our lives would say that something else or someone else is Lord, because we recognize that you and you alone are good. May we live lives that demonstrate that fact. We recognize we need your help to do this, so we ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.